Come on, we're going to do it. Come on. Welcome to Functional Theology, where pastor and author Chad Ashby talks about theology, scripture, and culture in a world where two and two seems to always make a five. You can find Chad's work at Christianity Today, Desiring God, the Gospel Coalition, and Think Christian. Follow his blog at Aftermath, chadashby.com, or you can follow him on Twitter at Chad underscore Ashby. Welcome to another episode of Functional Theology, the Christmas edition. And I uh, got my mug of coffee here with me. I've got some soulful Christmas tunes going. I've got my space heater. I don't know if you can hear that whirring in the background. Don't have any Christmas cookies here in my office, but uh, back home they're waiting for me. And you know, I thought it would just be fun. I've written a lot about the wise men. And I thought it'd be great just to kind of, we'll do an episode that's just everything you ever wish you could know about the wise men. Um, so we'll talk about, you know, what's the proper name? What should we call them? Are they magi, wise men, kings? Maybe you've heard sermons. Maybe you've had battles online with people about what should you call them? Um, and then I think another one that people love to nitpick about, we're going to talk a little bit about, well, how many were there? Were there three? We sing We Three Kings. Um, but I'm not sure that Matthew is as specific as we'd like him to be. Well, why don't we why don't we just dive in? This first the first thing I want to talk about is what exactly should we call these guys? And um, a lot of the material I'm going to be sharing with you, you can actually go online and read at Christianity Today. I did a piece for them a year or so ago, uh, ago back called Magi, Wise Men, or Kings. It's complicated because it is complicated. If you want to read about it, just search search it in Google Magi Wiseman Kings. It'll pop right up. Um, but uh, we all know what I'm talking about. If you've been to a live nativity or you've participated in a Christmas pageant or you've been to uh, a church where they've done a, a drama or cantata or whatever, we're talking about the guys who come down the aisle at the end of the pageant. They've got the glittery robes and the fake beards on and, you know, sometimes if the church really has pulled out all the stops, they've got a live camel with them, you know. Um, they're carrying gold frankincense and myrrh. I'm talking about the Magi. Or is it wise men? Wait a second. Maybe you call them kings. And, uh, you know, this question I think maybe would have been cleared up if Luke who is known to be a very specific historian, if he had written this story into his gospel, but he didn't. We have uh, Matthew's account, which is shrouded in mystery. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 begins, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And instantly, on, this, on the pages of Scripture, Matthew has these men appear out of the wilderness, the desert, swirling with intrigue and mystery. Where did they come from? Well, Matthew kind of winks at us and says, they came from the east. And in fact, um, if you were to look at church tradition, 
from various countries. I think, I don't, this isn't an exact tally, but there's got to be more than a dozen countries who claim that they were the country of origin from these, these men came from their country. But Matthew's not specific enough. He just says the East. And technically, the word that Matthew uses in his gospel, in the original language, is the word magi. But what are magi? Are they kings, wise men, sorcerers, astrologers? Well, you're asking a question that Christians have been trying to nail down for millennia. As early as 200 AD, Tertullian was uh, laying out arguments that the magi, while being astrologers by trade, were considered kings. Now, to the contrary, John Calvin felt very strongly about anyone who would label them, quote, three kings. In fact, he says, Beyond all doubt, they have been stupefied by a righteous judgment of God that all might laugh at their gross ignorance. Well, uh, to add a further wrinkle, first century naturalist Pliny the Elder wrote several chapters about the Magi, wherein uh, they sound more like something from a Harry Potter novel. He details their skill in magical arts, including, he writes about how they had a, uh, a, a, a healing uh, potion where they poured boiled earthworms into the ear in order to cure a toothache. So, I don't know. Matthew doesn't include anything like that. But, uh, you know, despite disagreement, here are a few of the facts. This is what I can tell you. The word magus, M-A-G-U-S, is a Persian word. Um, however, Basil indicates that they were not confined to a specific empire, but these magus were scattered all over the country. First century Jewish historian Philo referred to Balaam, of all people, from Numbers 22 through 24 as a magus. So this anachronism indicates uh, that by the first century AD, it may have been, this word may have been adopted for a more general use. Herodotus, uh, in his account of the Magi in his histories, which were written in 440 BC, portray these Magi as conniving political figures vying for royal power. Various kings in the ancient world frequently consulted these men because of their skill in interpreting omens, signs, and the stars. And all of these external witnesses corroborate the picture of Magi that we actually have in the Old Testament. Um, the Persians and their Magi crop up in the biblical timeline, in the days of Daniel and Esther. One particular statement concerning um, King Xerxes' Magi might raise an eyebrow. It says in Esther verse chapter 1, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, the men next to him being the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So, these seven men who are clearly called magi are also labeled wise men and also princes. So the question then becomes, are these titles interchangeable? Magi, wise men, kings, or princes, and what do they signify? So as we reconsider these familiar Christmas characters, could it be that Matthew was being intentionally vague with his coy uh, magi from the East? So 
why don't we take each of these terms in, in turn? Let's say we want to call them magi. Well, the term magi is the precise Greek word used in Matthew's gospel. His story demonstrates um, that the magi were astrologers and interpreters of omens because it says that they were following a star. And uh, Matthew's gospel also has them dreaming dreams and seeing visions. When they arrive in Jerusalem, their curt bluntness had King Herod. Uh, he had him sort of spitting out his morning Christmas coffee. Uh, when they asked the question, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Um, these three visitors were like a blast from the Hebrews' past. The book of Daniel chronicles how he, Daniel, and his companions spent 70 years exiled among Magi in the east. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was in the habit, uh, if you know anything about his history, of of gathering the best and brightest from his vanquished foes into a, quite, a, a kind of advisory pool, a body of wise men, stargazers, and dreamers. And when he captured Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he added them to his menagerie of magi. And Daniel 1 tells us that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters and the word there is used, magi, in his whole kingdom. In one episode from the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has an ominous dream. So he summons his magi and enchanters and he demands, if you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Well, the magi only succeed in coming up with a bunch of excuses, but Daniel re runs the rescue uh, with the dream and the interpretation that's given to him from the Lord. In awestruck gratitude, the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him the ruler over the entire province of Babylon and, and placed him in charge of all its wise men. The whole episode with Daniel and the Magi, to me, feels like biblical deja vu because another famous Old Testament king had a penchant for keeping his court packed with wise men, astrologers, and, ma and magicians. And uh, the guy I'm thinking of is Pharaoh of Egypt. If you turn back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, it tells us of a young man named Joseph who was carted off to exile, not in Babylon, but in Egypt. And one night, Pharaoh, he awakes with this terrifying dream, and he finds that none of his magicians have the interpretation, once again, just of a lot of excuses. It was Joseph, the Hebrew exile in prison, who provided Pharaoh with God's interpretation. In response, Pharaoh clothed Joseph like a king. It's very reminiscent of what happens with Daniel. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus Pharaoh set Joseph over all the land of Egypt. That's from Genesis 41. Long before Daniel, Joseph knew what it was like to have magi bow before him. So at Christmas time, when we call Matthew's journeyman Magi, we shouldn't be surprised to find them bowing before a Hebrew and heralding him as king. At Jesus' birth, we should recognize how the tables have turned. This time, a star led the Magi into exile, sojourning in search of the scepter rising out of Israel. Now, that's a direct quote from the Magus uh, uh, Balaam from Numbers 24. This time they do not find a man seated at the right hand of Pharaoh or of Nebuchadnezzar, 
but a child seated on his mother's lap. As they bow and worship, they become the first to recognize the end from the beginning. This child would surpass both Daniel and Joseph as chief of the Magi. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. I don't think it's an accident that that's the last words that we hear from Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Well, let's say that, uh, you know, your, your flavor is more uh, calling them wise men. That's what you're used to. Maybe the word magi just has too much of a foreign ring to it. Uh, have no fear. Wise men is a perfectly acceptable translation of that word magi. Cicero describes magi as being wise and learned men among the Persians. In fact, the Hebrew word wise men is used much more frequently in the Old Testament to designate this class of astrological advisors. Gentile kings valued these men for their wisdom and would often consult with them about affairs of the kingdom. Many of the early church fathers saw significance in wise men bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh from the east. In the estimation of Justin uh, Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, and Tertullian, these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, were particularly Arabian in nature. And Martin Luther agreed. He writes concerning the wise men, At first they did not consider this king to be God, but in the usual manner took him, that is Jesus, for a temporal king, just as the queen of Sheba considered Solomon a king, coming to him with presents from her country. This is what happened. Luther reads Matthew chapter 2, and here's what he thinks. Foreigners from Arabia bringing gifts and seeking wisdom in Jerusalem. We've heard this story before. And he's right, we have. This story uh, of wise men in Matthew 2 echoes 1 Kings 10. And let me read to you just a little bit from there. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. And as she visited with Solomon, his wisdom took her breath away. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard, she says. And laying her gifts of gold, spice, and precious stones before him, she blessed the Lord for making Solomon king. Well, maybe you prefer to call the visitors bearing treasures, uh, chests of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You want to call them wise men this Christmas. Well, as you do, follow them in the footsteps of the Queen of Sheba across the wilderness in search of the wisdom of God which has been placed in Jerusalem. However, as Matthew tells us, the wisdom of God was not to be found in the king's palace there in Jerusalem, but in the small town of Bethlehem. As you watch these men lay their gifts, these men from Arabia before baby Jesus, realize that something greater than Solomon is here. This little child is himself the wisdom of God. May you join the Arabian queen in her prayer. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. 1 Kings 10.9 Well, let's talk about our third title. Maybe we want to call them kings. After all, they always wear crowns in the Christmas pageants I've seen, and we all know the carol, We Three Kings. The medieval church heavily preferred this designation, much to the dismay of many of the reformers. Uh, 
But Matthew's magi would not be the first wise men to be considered kings. Uh, remember, I've already mentioned Joseph and Daniel, both Hebrew magi of sorts, were elevated to royal status. We also find magi receiving royal honors elsewhere in uh, ancient literature. I already mentioned uh, the bizarre account in Herodotus's uh, histories about uh, two magi brothers who staged a coup for royal power after King Smyrtus dies. One of them, who also was named Smyrtus, who bore apparently a striking resemblance to the late king, he sat on the throne as an impersonator. As early as the second century, Tertullian was considering the Magi to be kings, and he argued that their visit fulfilled Solomon's prayer in Psalm 72. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present gifts to him. But Tertullian found Isaiah 60 to be the most compelling evidence. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. It's impossible to miss the clear parallels with Matthew chapter two. Well, we may never know whether the Magi were literal kings, but the idea of kings bringing treasure from Babylon is a compelling way to envision the beginning of Matthew's gospel. In the days of Isaiah, King Hezekiah received a friendly envoy of Babylonians in Jerusalem. In a moment of hubris, he showed them the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures, Isaiah 39 tells us. Well, then Isaiah went and warned Hezekiah that these Babylonians had made a mental note of his storehouses. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Well, if you know your, your uh, history, sure enough, in 587 BC, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar did just that, capturing and plundering Jerusalem, carrying off all their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In fact, Daniel recounts a raucous party in the Babylonian capital where the Babylonian king used the golden cups from the Lord's temple to take shots. So, if you prefer to call the Magi kings this Advent season, just recognize how you're proclaiming the return of Jerusalem's treasuries from exile. As these kings travel the road from Babylon in the east to Jerusalem, they bring back the gold, frankincense, and myrrh stolen so many years before from David's house. This is what Isaiah promised would happen. The same foreigners that looted Jerusalem would one day rebuild her walls and their kings will serve her. Matthew shows us that what Nehemiah and Ezra experienced under Cyrus the Persian was a mere foretaste of the riches God would return to his Messiah in Jerusalem. At Christmas, the kings bring the treasures back to Jerusalem. It signals the beginning of the eternal restoration of David's wealth, the rebuilding of David's city, and the rejoicing of David's people. So, call them magi, call them wise men, you can even call them kings if you like. When it comes to Matthew's Christmas narrative, the more the merrier, in my opinion. Each label shines a light on a different facet of the story. Whatever you choose to call them this holiday season, these men are the first in the canonical New Testament to bow and worship the Lord Jesus. And so this Christmas, I think we would all do well to follow their example. Now, on to the uh, second pesky question we have during the Christmas season. 
how many wise men were there? And I'm sure if this Christmas is like any other Christmas season, you've probably already read or seen at least uh, emerge, articles emerging online that are arguing about, you know, there weren't three kings, there were actually this many or that many or whatever, you know, all those articles that are uh, supposed to be debunking all of these terrible Christmas traditions that we have. But um, this is not going to be one of those times. As far as I'm concerned, Christmas is a time of imagination, celebration, and mirth. So, as we come to the Christmas carol, We Three Kings, you're not going to find me pointing at Matthew chapter 2 and saying, See, it doesn't actually say how many magi there were. Um, which is actually technically correct. It doesn't say how many. Um, but, you know, it's let's get in the spirit of Christmas. Let's expand our imagination a little. And uh, let me show you that it is perfectly fitting with Matthew's overarching narrative to sing We Three Kings. And I've found it's almost without fail. If you want to get to the bottom of anything in the Bible, the best place to go and to start your search is in Genesis. And again, it proves true. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So this is a really strange story because it says that the Lord came to visit Abraham, but when Abraham looks up, he sees the Lord in the form of three men. And uh, the story tells us Abraham scrambled around to put together a suitable meal for these three. And as they ate, the Lord delivered good news. He says, uh, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and I promise Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah, who I'm sure was a part of the uh, hospitality preparations, is not at the meal, but she's there eavesdropping through the curtain. And she begins to scoff at the prospect of pregnancy at her elderly age and the three men who uh, can see the shadow of Sarah through the curtain they sort of speak to her uh, as she's eavesdropping and say is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son reiterating the promise However, Abraham's hospitality was really only a pit stop along a more foreboding journey. Verse 16 of chapter 8 tells us, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The visitation of these three men was good news for Abraham. His offspring, the child of promise, was going to be born very soon. It was also fearful judgment for those in Sodom, uh, that it, judgment of the Lord was about to fall on them. Well, in the ensuing chapter, if you know how the story progresses, angels visited Abraham's relative Lot, who was living in the city of Sodom, and they helped his family escape certain death. 
up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. That very day, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. I think that Matthew's Christmas narrative about the Magi visiting Jesus um, dovetails with Genesis 18 and 19 in many ways. His story also begins with the proclamation of an impossible conception to Joseph about Mary. Very interesting how it follows the same structure uh, as Abraham and Sarah, unlike Luke's gospel, which has the angel appearing to Mary. Um, a proclamation about an impossible conception that will bring the visitation of the Lord. The angel tells Joseph they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the next chapter, wise men come to Jerusalem, whose inhabitants claim we have Abraham as our father, declaring, these magi, the birth of the king of the Jews. And the city rightly acknowledges this is the promised offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, the Christ child. Interestingly, the three men of Genesis 18 never returned in physical form to see the child of Abraham. As Matthew's wise men enter the house and see the child with Mary his mother, we could think of it as Matthew presenting the final fulfillment of the promise made all the way back in Genesis. I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah your wife shall have a son. After the departure of the Magi, angels warn of impending wrath, just like Lot and his family who escaped Sodom. The angels tell Joseph, rise, take your child and his mother and flee to Egypt. It's undeniable that the narrative arc of the Magi feels very similar to the visit of those three men proclaiming the birth of Isaac and the destruction of Sodom in Genesis. Now, a couple more things. The destruction of Sodom is used time and again by prophets of Scripture as a symbol of impending judgment. When Moses warns the people of the curses of the law, he tells them that disobedience to the Lord will result in a similar reign of fire. Let me read to you from Genesis 29. The whole land will be burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? So Moses is using Sodom, the judgment on Sodom, as a symbol and a representation of the judgment of God that could fall if they disobey the law. Even more pertinent to the visitation of our wise men, Isaiah begins his book by representing Jerusalem as the metaphorical Sodom. Let me read to you from Isaiah 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. Ezekiel also compares the sins of Judah's capital city, Jerusalem, to those of wicked, uh, wicked Sodom. This is from Ezekiel 16. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. 
You have committed more abominations than they, and you have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Jeremiah, he takes up Sodom as a as a um, metaphorical name for Jerusalem. But in the in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have heard a I have seen a horrible thing. All of them have become like Sodom to me, and its ha inhabitants like Gomorrah. So what I'm trying to establish here is there is a symbolic comparison in the prophets between Jerusalem and Sodom. And you know what? That's not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. In fact, John the Revelator calls Jerusalem the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. That's Revelation 11.8. So as we see the visitation, of the three men, back in Genesis 18, if we set it beside the visitation of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, we see a foreshadowing of the fate of Jerusalem. Like the three men who visited Sodom to search out its sins, the arrival of the wise men in Jerusalem revealed the wickedness of the city of Jerusalem. The city was under the dominion of a murderous king, the chief priests and scribes were taking counsel together with Herod against the Lord and against his Christ. In a thick retelling of events, I think Matthew evokes the visit of the three men in Genesis as an ominous foreboding of Jerusalem's impending destruction. If you remember the story in Sodom, the men of the city gathered in a mob by night and tried to assault their visitors. Seeking to do their worst, the city proved deserving of the burning wrath of God. In, this, in a similar way, the city of Jerusalem sealed its own fate as it abused and murdered Emmanuel. That is, Jesus Christ. It's no accident that Matthew's narrative only visits Jerusalem twice. In the entire book, once at the beginning of the book, and a second time at the end coinciding with the birth and the death of Jesus Christ. When Gentile magi entered the city gates seeking the king of the Jews in chapter 2, Herod the king was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Fast forward to chapter 21 when Gentile Galileans entered the city gates proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David, the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred up, we're told, at his birth, they sought to kill Emmanuel. At his death, Jerusalem succeeded. Throughout his ministry, Jesus used Sodom to symbolize the judgment that would fall on the city that rejects him. Truly, I say to you, it will be, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Well, when the city of Jerusalem would not recognize Jesus at his triumphal entry, in fact, they ask the question, who is this? He enters the temple and overturns their tables. He then pronounced woes upon the city and encouraged his disciples to flee from Jerusalem on the coming day of wrath. In the end, the city of Jerusalem proved even more wicked than Sodom. When they got their hands on the city's visitor, they cried out, let him be crucified, mocking him, crying out, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him and beat him, hanging him publicly on a cross as though taunting God himself 
Over his head they put the charges against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At Christmas time, we normally like to think of peace and white snow and doves and silly nutcrackers and Christmas lights and cards and cookies. But we have to realize that the visitation of the Magi also has a foreboding sense of judgment for all those who refuse to join the wise men and acknowledge that the Christ, the Lord himself, has come. When we visualize three men coming from far away to survey Jerusalem, we're choosing to see how Matthew's story lays out the justified wrath of God against a wicked city. Indeed, the symbolic Sodom shows us what awaits all those who scoff at the advent of the Messiah. So this Christmas, let us celebrate the goodness of God, the joy of the season, and eat Christmas cookies and drink hot cocoa. However, as we ponder the visit of we three kings, let us remember that Emmanuel, God with us, spells salvation for his people by judgment for his enemies. So there you have it. Feel free to talk about three kings, and when you do, just point people to Genesis chapter 18, and, and you'll have a great, lively discussion. I hope you've learned probably everything you could have ever wanted to know about the Magi. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I would greatly appreciate um, sharing this with your friends. I think I'm going to do at least one more Christmas functional theology, So uh, because I've actually got a lot of thoughts about Christmas stuff. So um, we might have a, an unwrapping party where we'll unwrap some different topics that I've written and thought about uh, regarding Christmas and Christmas songs and uh, the Christmas story and just different things. So we'll have that for you next time. 